Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome back to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. This is Allie Miller, and I'm here with Becky Yu. Hey, guys. And y'all are joining us for episode 52, Advocating for Your Health and Working with Your Doctor, featuring a guest, Dr. John Lemansky, the Keto Doc. We thought this episode would be really helpful for listeners because we're always hearing people asking for doctor referrals or struggling to work with their doctor and get them on board with using food as medicine and especially with using ketosis as medicine. Absolutely. So I met Dr. John Lemansky at KetoCon, I guess a couple weeks back now, and we were both on a panel talking about neurological health and cancer, and we had some great conversations about how to work with your doctor and his transition from more of a mainstream conventional practice in Mississippi and now doing a more boutique practice out in California and how he's able to use the ketogenic diet in his clinical practice. Awesome. So this episode will really focus on his story and his transition, what he's seen clinically, and then a whole bunch about the ketogenic diet and the outcomes that he's seen with his patients. Yes. We talked about labs that are recommended to assess, best way to measure ketone outputs. We problem solved and and gave him a couple, I think, challenging questions. So we hope you all enjoy. We had a lot of fun interviewing him and we hope you have as much fun listening. So Becky, let's give listeners a little bit of background on John Lemansky prior to bringing him onto the show today. John Lemansky, MD, is a board-certified physician in internal medicine. He combines modern medicine techniques with nutritional ketosis to help clients reverse metabolic diseases, improve cellular health, and lose real pounds of fat. He also uses biohacking techniques as part of a virtual health system to optimize human performance for athletes and high-functioning individuals. For more information, he's available via email at info at johnlemanskymd.com or johnlemanskymd.com. So we'll be sure to put both of those, the email and his website, in our show links. But without further ado, let's let's bring John on. Hi, Dr. John. We are so glad to have you today on the show. So we're just going to jump right in. And I know that you and Allie met uh, on a panel at KetoCon. And the panel was on neurological health and cancer. And I wasn't there, but I got to watch it afterward. Um, And I also heard you call yourself a recovering physician and listen to your lecture on keto and biohacking. So let's just get started and talk a little bit about your use of ketosis in clinical practice and how that varies from your training and early clinical experience. Okay. Yeah. Hey guys, great to be on the show. Um, long time listener, uh, really like the content that you guys put out. So, um, yeah, I'm a, uh, internal medicine physician and, um, I worked in a hospital setting for quite a while. Um, but realized that, to really make change in the health of America and individuals, it's important to focus on preventative medicine um, and really using nutrition, biohacking to optimize that. Um, And especially with ketosis or ketogenic lifestyle, there's so many advantages from a health perspective that um, I use it quite a bit with my clients to um, give them a baseline. So The way I look at it is um, you cannot do nutrition in a bubble. You can't do it just by itself. You have to address other components of somebody's life, including stress, sleep, uh, exercise, um, even stuff like gratuity. But um, the fundamental um, baseline has to be through nutrition. You know, if you do all those other things and you do not address nutrition, it's really not going to be successful. Um, And so... Ketosis or ketogenic lifestyle is really about going back to the root of what we've been doing like ancestrally in terms of our health and nutrition. You know, if you think back 
to our ancestors, what would they do? They would eat a large meal and then store some of that as fat to be used for, you know, periods of famine when they basically couldn't catch an animal or eat. Problem with modern society is that we always are eating. We always have that switch on. And so part of that has to do with we no longer have signals being sent that give us this idea that we are full, and so we keep eating. Um, if you switch over to nutritional ketosis, then that dramatically influences that. You start having signals that tell you you're full, and obviously from a cellular level, you get a tremendous amount of benefits. So I really use it as my kind of baseline and then build off of it. And can you define for listeners this concept of biohacking? I think uh, we actually have not use the term in our podcast at all yet. Uh, sure. and it might sound a little bit, <laughs> uh, you know, strange. What, is, what do you define biohacking as? Yeah, so biohacking is becoming trendy. Um, it sounds bigger than it is, but really what right. it is, it's you're trying to use all these different modalities. So using uh, methods like sleep, um, trying to train yourself to sleep better. Um, and you can use electronic devices, but also nutritional uh, changes like the ketogenic lifestyle to really improve everything at a cellular level. So you'll hear a lot of things on social media or in the news about mitochondrial health. And really, that's what biohacking tries to get to. It's this idea of using everything in your environment to either improve your life or negatively affect it. And so as a society, we're you know, very stimulated. We always have lights on. We always have TVs on. We're always on our phone. All those things can negatively affect our health, especially our autonomic system. And so we try to use different techniques to really kind of balance ourselves again. So probably the best biohacker um, or the original biohackers are going to be the yogis. So they would go do yoga or go, you know, monks would go up in the hills meditate what they were trying to do is trying to recenter themselves so we are essentially trying to be mini yogis <laughs> without actually having to go to a mountain and meditate for five years on end and that's interesting because often i think nowadays with the concept of biohacking it seems that we're trying to out technology technology <laughs> versus yeah. just get into the kind of more organic i love that comparison of yogis as being initial biohackers because it doesn't always take another layer of an add-on of you know your blue blocker glasses for your computer that you're using late right. at night and it's like maybe just shut it down man yeah. um, <laughs> so right. i think that's an interesting perspective for sure uh let, go ahead no, just, just, just one little side note on that. I mean, you know, you'll see guys, uh, probably the ones that are pushing that kind of technology are going to be Asprey, Ben Greenfield. And there is something to be said about, you know, going to nature or just meditating for five minutes, not having to add all these cool technologies um, to really maximize the benefits. And, and it's important to know because I think a lot of people hear biohacking, they see these fancy tools and they think, okay, well, that's going to cost me $50,000. I can't do it. Well, in reality, you can. All you need is a quiet space, five minutes meditation, and you're essentially biohacking yourself. And, and likely it's it's a layering effect as well. You know, so where you use the term biohacking, uh, Becky and myself use the term functional medicine in a very similar, I think, way as far as, you know, addressing this root cause, using technology and information to address these underlying mechanisms of imbalance. And foundationally speaking, you know, that be it the ketogenic diet or a high-fat, high uh, low-carbohydrate diet could be optimal foundation, but then there's these layers and um, additional add-ons that may be necessary as far as nutritional supplementation or tools and things like that. So I think it's it's interesting, and, and that's where we get really individualized with, with Beth's mm -hmm. patient outcomes. So, exactly. So let's talk about your transition from practicing as an internist or, or were you an emergency doc, emergency room doctor in Mississippi? Or tell me a little bit about where you were in Mississippi and what you're doing now in California and maybe some sure. of your biggest frustrations and, and the changes you've made career-wise. Okay, yeah. So um, I did my medical residency in Colorado. And after that, I, you know, I think most physicians go into medicine or nutritionists go into nutrition for this idea that we really want to help people. I, I firmly believe that. Uh, at some point along the way, that probably changes. But 
I decided, you know, I wanted to go to the heart of this obesity epidemic and Mississippi is always top in the nation or, you know, number two. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go to Jackson, Mississippi, went out there and spent about five years working not as an ER doc, but as an internal medicine, as a hospitalist in the hospital. So if you get admitted to the hospital, I'm going to be the one taking care of you. Um, and it was a very good experience in the sense that it was the hotbed of, you know, obesity, metabolic syndrome, all the things that we are talking about on your podcast. Um, and what was striking to me was how young people were. So you're talking people in their twenties, thirties, having massive heart attacks, massive strokes, and I'm 39, and so when I start seeing people who are younger than me having these, you know, massive diseases, it's scary. It's really scary. Sure. And the, and on top of it, I would see the same people over and over again. And so, what would that tell me is a couple of things. Number one, all this is nutritionally derived. You know, if somebody's in their 20s or 30s having massive heart attacks, and there's no real genetic predisposition, then what is change in the environment that is affecting them? And so I started looking more into kind of preventative medicine, uh, functional medicine, um, and I had been doing ketosis on myself for about 10 to 12 years. Um, so I started kind of incorporating some of those techniques into patient care. I got a lot of pushback from it, though, um, it, from the medical kind of establishment, and um, that was pretty striking. So uh, I decided to kind of change gears and do it, um, on my own. Um, and I started a clinic kind of a virtual clinic in San Francisco, um, to really address people's health, um, using biohacking, using ketosis to make sure that people don't have to see me as a physician in the hospital, you know, for 50 years. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, I think I moved back to California where I'm from just to be closer to family, but also a lot of the clients that I've been working with are in Silicon Valley. And so they wanted more of a direct one-on-one -on -one interaction with me. Sure. Um, so it made more sense just logistically. Um, and I think a lot of what we're talking about is really being driven now by Silicon Valley. Um, they are starting to see the importance of health, not only for, you know, obviously, um, cost benefits, but also for performance, you know, people are not getting sick. I mean, I haven't been sick in five years, so my performance is a lot better. Um, and so they're starting to really see the benefits of it. And I think, um, it's kind of the wave of the future, especially for medicine. Definitely. And then, so let's go back, um, and get a little background on how you got into using the ketogenic diet, both for yourself and your personal story, and then applying that to your patients. Sure. Um, and then within that question, if there was any kind of compelling either scientific study or big medical aha moment that you had, I'd like to hear about that too. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said, probably been doing ketogenic lifestyle for about 12 years, I would say. Um, I actually used to be vegetarian um, prior to that. And um, in medical school, you know, I was young, but I never really felt very good. Um, and I figured, well, you know, I'm just overworked. I'm tired. I'm, I'm studying all, all day. And then there was this kind of aha moment where after being vegetarian for about four years, I got my lab work done. Um, and it showed that I basically was pre-diabetic, that I, I was on the verge of metabolic syndrome. And the, the interesting point was that my body fat percentage was probably about 10%. So it wasn't like I was obese. It was more this idea of TOFI where, you know, you're skinny on the outside, but internally you actually are metabolically damaged. And so when I, and the idea was that, well, I'm vegetarian, I'm eating healthy, I'm eating clean. Why is this affecting my body this way? And on top of it, why am I not seeing, you know, weight gain, but I'm seeing metabolic damage. So that's when I really started researching these, uh, these different types of kind of diets and fad diets and, um, started reading more about, ketogenic diet. And at the time it wasn't as big as it is now. So there wasn't as much information out there, but fundamentally it made sense. And I started reading back the biochemistry because what people don't really understand is that as a physician, we don't get taught nutrition, we get taught uh, biochemistry. 
and biochemistry is basically, you know, how do uh, things get broken down to create energy or how, how is the process in the body? But it doesn't really tie everything together in terms of, you know, the type of nutrition you eat, how does it affect your body positively or negatively? So you really, as a physician or anybody, you have to really read on your own. And so I started that process. And um, nowadays, anything that I really recommend to any of my clients, I do test on myself. So that allows me to keep up with all the information, but also to see how things are going to affect individuals. And obviously, it's not going to be 100% correlated, but it's going to be pretty accurate in terms of like, if I tell somebody to do a five-day fast okay how's it going to feel what are they going to experience so that when they're in it i can tell them you know this is this is normal or this is abnormal right and um, did you start first especially coming from the the line of vegetarian diet which it's so funny i think so many of us do that's like the step mm-hmm. one <laughs> of, right. of the health journey and then the deficiency symptoms and the right. metabolic syndrome and then the the reset, uh, did you kind of transition first into more of a paleo approach or just incorporating animal proteins and, and start looking at macros or, or did you delve right into ketogenic high fat, uh, and and moderate protein or or kind of how, how, what was the process? How many years from the vegetarian transition? Right. So I'm pretty extreme. So when I do something, I kind of do it hundred percent. And I, and I just want to say, you brought something up very interesting that, most people, I think, do vegetarian for one of two reasons. Either it's an ethical um, you know, issue because of the way animals are treated, or it's, uh, I just want to be healthy, but inevitably you get nutritional deficiencies. So for about a year you feel great, but then it really catches up to you and you don't feel very good. Um, so for me, I went 100% straight into uh, ketogenic lifestyle, You know, almost 90% fat, um, so I kind of went a little bit more extreme because I wanted to affect my uh, metabolic labs. I okay. wanted to see a dramatic change. And then since then, I mean, over the years, um, since I've kind of normalized my insulin, all my other metabolic markers, now I, I would say I do probably 70% uh, fat, but I'm very specific on the types of fats that I consume. Um, and I incorporate a lot more of like carbohydrates in the term, in the sense of, um, you know, not, I hate to use the word complex carbohydrates, but vegetables, green sure. vegetables. Cause I think a lot of times you'll see people who don't really understand the ketogenic lifestyle will say, okay, I'm going to just eat fat and I'm going to avoid carbohydrates at all costs, right. especially vegetables. And you can actually get quite a, a bit of uh, negative effects from doing that. Sure. And, and actually that's, I think a great transition. So, on that end, and I know when we're working with our clients and getting them keto adapted, it often starts with doing more prolonged fasting to really, you know, drain out that glycogen stores and doing more snacking versus meals as far as keeping vegetables a little bit lower to really get the body fat adapted. But then it's wild to see the allowance or variance that some people are able to incorporate, you know, a tablespoon of pumpkin puree into a recipe or even, you know, starchy vegetables in moderation and still stay full on ketogenic. Um, So let's talk about some of the pitfalls, both in the perception of the medical field, but also that you've seen clinically in an imbalanced ketogenic diet, uh, kind of the, the end of both edge, both, both ends of the sword, if you would. Sure. So um, from the medical community, I would say that we still have to get away from this idea that fat is bad. So, you know, the low fat craze and what I call fat phobia just won't go away. And I think it's going to take the medical establishment quite a bit of time um, to really kind of make that fundamental shift. Um, I find it ironic that we keep saying the same thing as a medical establishment and we keep getting sicker and sicker individuals, but we don't actually look and say, okay, well, why are people getting sicker? And obviously you can't just say that it's fat um, or, you know, lack of fat in the diet that is contributing to it. But I do think that it's a significant factor. Um, and so I think people have to understand the way the medical establishment works. 
Physicians have to follow guidelines that are put out by big societies like the American Diabetes Association or the American Heart Association. Um, they put out guidelines from everything, including nutrition. And if you're not following those guidelines, um, you know, you're not necessarily practicing the standard of care for medicine. And so that opens physicians up to a lot of liability and things like that. So it's a very difficult situation to be in um, where you're not promoting what they're recommending. Um, but at the same time, those guidelines are wrong. And there's a few physicians that are starting to push the envelope and saying, you know, we keep telling people the wrong thing. For instance, if you're a type 2 diabetic and um, you follow the guidelines, you're supposed to eat quite a bit of carbohydrates. Well, it doesn't make sense. Why right. would you feed somebody who cannot handle uh, sugar, which is essentially what carbohydrates convert into more sugar, and tell them, well, take more insulin to combat the sugar? It just theoretically doesn't make sense. Um, and yet that's what we tell people. So I think what I usually do uh, with people in the medical community is give them information. So, you know, here's what the, the, the research shows. For instance, with uh, fat and saturated fat specifically, you know, take the uh, Women's Health Initiative. I mean, it will show you there's um, decreased, excuse me, there's increased morbidity with people on a low-fat diet. So you get higher levels of cancer, higher levels of autoimmune disease. You know, you die uh, earlier. So there's really no studies that are showing that eating a high-fat diet are going to contribute to more metabolic diseases, quite the opposite. And then on top of it, when you have clients and you check their labs and you put them on a ketogenic lifestyle, those labs improve. So why is it taking so long for establishment to say, okay, well, maybe there's something wrong here. Maybe we're not telling people the right thing. And I think it's going to take a while. I mean, and, I think it's going to take 20, 30 years to change. And it, I think it also takes education on what labs we're looking at as far as our greatest priorities. You know, are we looking at a, a shift in total LDL because we've also seen an improvement in total HDL and then we've seen a lipoprotein particle distribution improvement, right. you know, and, and, and what's right. the give and take in there? And I think there's a disconnect often in the allopathic or conventional model of, of kind of the uh, getting gun shy, if you will, um, mm -hmm. of seeing short-term transitions in, in lipids, which often end up being favorable, especially when we see things like homocysteine and CRP and other stronger right. correlators improving, you know, um, and I think that's often where, where we get a little bit of, of backwash if, if that total LDL goes up slightly for a period of time. Right. And, and that's a very important point that you uh, just mentioned is that, and it's very common that I get this where, so LDL, people understand it as the bad cholesterol. Well, you can actually break down LDL into multiple different types of small particles, and that's what you're referencing. Um, and so some of these are actually good. So um, APOB versus APOA1 ratio is a much better test to measure the good versus bad. But a lot of internists don't even know that that test exists. And so when you start a ketogenic lifestyle, your LDL, which people think is the bad LDL, will likely go up. Um, and that's because you're producing also very good small particles. Those small particles will not damage you know, endothelial cell lining. So they're not going to cause the atherosclerotic plaques that we uh, associate with um, cardiogenic or, or cardiac disease. They're actually going to be um, protective. So your LDL may go up initially, but the good types of LDL that you're producing and you want to produce are actually going up. And the bad types, which are going to be very small particles that are going to damage the lining of the blood vessels, those are derived from refined carbohydrates. And so you have to have a better understanding of the basic labs. You also mentioned the CRP or high-res CRP which is a marker of inflammation in the body. You know, it's not specific, it's very sensitive, meaning that it's gonna tell you whether your body's inflamed or not. It's not gonna tell you why your body's inflamed. But what's important about it is that as you start uh, implementing these different types of modality, like biohacking or nutrition, 
you'll see that number go down. And so you'll know, okay, whatever I'm doing is causing decreased inflammation in my body, which is essentially what we're all trying to accomplish, right? Because that means we're going to be healthier. We're not going to have metabolic dysfunction. Um, and that's really what we're trying to um, address. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's sure. very important then, to know the information. So what about um, any negative impacts that you've seen or keto done wrong, anything clinically that you've seen manifest in patients' lab work or otherwise? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's very important to have a very um, comprehensive baseline of studies, uh, of lab studies that you have done because, because keto is becoming uh, quite popular these days. Um, because there's a lot of information, a lot of misinformation, you know, anybody who's done keto and, and lost 20 pounds all of a sudden is an expert, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is good in the sense that we're getting more information out there and more people are becoming aware that it's out there. But it's also dangerous because a lot of times people will not understand the basic nutritional concepts or metabolic concepts like you or I would. Um, and so, you know, pretty good example is you'll see vitamin deficiencies, Right, because people will do keto, but they'll they'll do a very very high fat. Um, one of my like biggest pet peeves would be keto fast food. So you see right. a lot of people talking about a ketogenic lifestyle. They're going to McDonald's or they're going to In and Out mm. and they're getting a hamburger, um, but they're not eating the bun. So that's keto. Well, it's not keto because a couple things. Number one, the cheese that they use is not cheese; it's cheese product. <laughs> You know, the meat that they use um, is not the type of meat you want, right? So it's you have to delve in a little bit deeper. For instance, the meat is going to have uh, been fed grains, and those grains are high in omega-6. So those are going to cause quite a bit of inflammation. The fats that they use to actually cook the meat is going to be hydrogenated oils. Right. So all those things are going to bump up your inflammation. They're going to cause insulin resistance possible leptin resistance. And so you're not going to get the benefit. So I, th I think it's important to understand what you're trying to accomplish. So getting away from this concept of I'm doing keto just to lose weight. And I think that's 90% of people are saying, I want to lose 50 pounds. My friend has lost 50 pounds on keto. So I'm going to do keto to lose weight. We have to get people away from this idea that weight is the end all be all goal. It's not. It's Get your body healthy, measure that by lab work, which you do very well. And then because of that, you're going to lose whatever weight you want. It's not even going to be an issue. It's a side effect of what you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. And that's that reference back, you know, when you were mentioning your own skinny fat per se, right? <laughs> when we're, right. we're experiencing dysmetabolic syndrome regardless of size. And especially I see... And, and again, we're big proponents of the high-fat, low-carb diet, but I think it's important to note uh, one of my big emphasis always when I'm lecturing on the concept is replacement is just as important as removal. You know, mm -hmm. and that's kind of one of my mantras or phrases because I, I think it, it requires such a, a, a fine-tooth comb focus on the removal and really getting that rocking <laughs> to get keto adapted but then you have to find that 2.0 level of the replacement and the actual abundance foods and the foods that have antioxidants and these disease fighting compounds and how you can heal the body as a uh, direct influencer on a nutritional level beyond just the removal metabolic shifts that are occurring for sure. Right, right. You know, and that's very important. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of those labs. So if we're talking about going to your doctor and preparing for a visit and, and um, you know, what is a, a typical patient going to get run? I mean, that's kind of one of our our funny lines that we say is a lot of times patients are like, oh, my doctor runs all these labs and, and it's a comprehensive metabolic panel, which it sounds mm -hmm. to listeners like just the word comprehensive metabolic panel, right? It sounds comprehensive, <laughs> uh, yeah. but it's, and, and it has all these different analytes, but it's just a cheapo one panel, you know, it looks at liver, kidney, electrolytes, as you know. Um, but what are like five or six labs that we'd want them to request from their physician? Sure. Great question. So, you know, I think it's it's important to have those basic labs, like the comprehensive labs, um, you know, CBC, to check just to make sure that there's no overt issues going on in terms of there's no significant kidney dysfunction 
there's no significant, you know, leukocytosis infection. I think it's important to have those, but they're very basic in the sense that they don't give you much information. Um, so a couple important labs that your regular doctor is going to check is going to be a hemoglobin A1C. The hemoglobin A1C is going to give you like a three-week window of what your sugar level usually runs. And the way that works is you have these hemoglobin particles when you have sugar in your uh, or glucose in your bloodstreams, it causes advanced glycolated end products, and basically you can measure that. That's a good kind of start, but it doesn't really give you as much information as you want. Um, it's not going to catch people who are pre-diabetic necessarily. And so a better test that I would look at is insulin. So what is your insulin level? Insulin is going to be a much earlier predictor of diabetes, but also metabolic syndrome. And so just for the listeners, basic concepts, when you eat something that's basically glucose dominant, it goes into your system, glucose gets raised in your bloodstream, and so insulin is you know, the response to basically drive that glucose into your cells. So if you're having a lot of spikes of glucose, your insulin level is going to start going up to, to counteract that. Um, but most primary care doctors are not going to check that. Right, right. So having that as a is a I think one of the more powerful tests you can look at um, to really say, look, you're on your verge. Your hemoglobin A1C may be normal, but your insulin level is high, and so you are going that direction. So instead of waiting to the after effects, once you already have it, let's try to address it beforehand. So that would be one. The uh, cholesterol that you mentioned or we talked about earlier. I would ask them to check an ApoB to ApoA1 ratio, which is kind of what we talked about, where mm-hmm. your LDL may be elevated, but um, you know, is it the good type of LDL or the bad type of LDL? Um, that's an important one that your doctor probably won't check unless you ask them. Within that, the triglyceride level is one of the most important tests. Um, so triglycerides, if they're elevated, are going to be a reflection of elevated glucose in your system. Right, right. You can have some people who have, you know, genetic predisposition, familial type of hypertriglyceridemia. Uh, so those people obviously are going to have high levels, but the majority of people will actually have, you know, uh, levels that are um, relative to their uh, carbohydrate intake. Uh, another another good one is going to be the um, MTHFR gene mutation, um, which I know you are probably pretty big on, mm-hmm. where um, people would not actually be able to uh, methylate their vitamin B levels. And so they won't actually get the benefits of eating carbohydrates from that sense. Um, What else? Um, Then you can also get levels like we talked about earlier, the high-res CRP level, which is going to measure your overall body inflammation. One of the ones that I really like people to get is a DEXA scan. Um, Okay. So I don't know if we can just briefly talk about that. So DEXA scan basically is going to look at a couple things. We use it for osteoporosis measurements. So we look at bone density. Um, but we also can use it to look at, um, body fat percentage and the specific types of fat that we're looking for. So for the listeners, there's different types of fat. There's quite a bit of, um, variance. So there's visceral fat, which is going to cover your organs. And that is the most metabolically active fat that we have. Then there's going to be subcutaneous fat, which is the fat that you see in the hips and the thighs, um, which is obviously not good, but it's not necessarily metabolically as active as the, the pinchable, visceral fat. The pinchable stuff. It doesn't yeah, look as right. good. <laughs> yes. Right, exactly. But the visceral fat, and this usually ties into people who are skinny on the outside, you know, have a essentially normal BMI, but that fat is so metabolically active um, releasing so many inflammatory cytokines that damaging your blood vessels, um, that you want to see, is that really the fat that, um, I want to get rid of? How much of that do I have? Just a caveat, the DEXA scan is not hundred percent accurate. It's an estimate. And so you can't just take it at its face value. You have to kind of sure. do what you're doing and then repeat it and see if there's any change specifically for what you're looking at. And the the less expensive uh, variant of the DEXA scan is some of these bioimpedance analysis machines out there. Right. And so it, we do like in body. We use that at our practice, and uh, that has a 
eight point of contact uh, electrical impedance. But yeah, as you're stating, there's variances, you know, especially with women that are cycling with fluid mm -hmm. retention. And, right. and so we like to look at consistency of measurements as far as time of the day, um, whether it's pre or post bowel movement, things like that, um, to take into account any variances. However, it, it is very helpful in looking at that uh, pounds of dry lean mass versus pounds of body fat mass and then the variances of distribution and that visceral uh, fat scoring, which we can see change by structured diet and, and it, we do see it correlating with reduced insulin resistance when we're looking at the fasting insulin levels coming back into optimal range. So definitely a strong correlation there. Exactly. Right? And, Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, I think also important is just um, repeating it. So, yes. you know, so you have a, I like to have subjective and objective data with my clients so that you know, part of it is how are you feeling? Obviously, that's the subjective, but the objective is here's the hard data. Here are your labs. Here's what's changed based on what we're doing. Here's your DEXA or your body pod or your impedance. You know, granted, it's there's some variation, but the reason it's important is because it goes back to this whole idea of using weight as the end all be all marker of success, right? So, um, if you go on a standard diet, you know, which inevitably they're all the same, they're all basically a calorie restricted diet. What happens? You burn through your glycogen stores and glycogen holds on to water. So glycogen is basically just the sugar in your muscles and your liver. Once you burn through that, you're going to lose weight, you're going to drop, but it's mostly water weight. All those diets, if you, if you maintain a calorie restricted diet, less than a thousand calories for an extended period of time you're going to start having protein catabolism. So you're going to start breaking down your lean body mass. And so you might lose 20 pounds and you know feel very virtuous about it. But what have you lost? You've lost probably seven pounds of water, another five pounds of lean body mass, and maybe some fat. And so when you start going back to the way you were previously eating, you do not have as much lean body mass to really burn that energy, which is what we want. So... Using a DEXA scan, you can have a better idea of, okay, I lost 20 pounds, but was it five pounds of lean body mass, which I don't want, or was it mostly visceral fat, subcutaneous fat? So it also gives you a better idea of the, where the weight loss is coming from, which is really what we want to know. Absolutely. And I think that's the uh, counterintuitive element. And we talk about that plateau and <laughs> frustrated is only so far away from the other effort term <laughs> of when you're dieting right. and losing weight. And often when we hit that plateau because our basal metabolic rate dropped with our muscle loss, mm -hmm. that's where we tip into the frustrated world. So for sure. Um, before we go on, I want to I want to transition to talk about some tools and um, you know anything that you kind of your your go to in your repertoire for problem solving things like insulin resistance or um, if there's any particular go to supplementation or elements. But before we go into that, I just want to let listeners know with the launch of our uh, virtual ketosis program, which is in active mode, so we're not accepting new participants until January. We do have, though, two uh, weight loss blood panels that are on our site now. So there is a weight loss plus and weight loss basic panel. Uh, I will put links in the show notes. So Becky will probably put links in the show notes. But um, I sure the, will. The weight loss plus includes the, the comprehensive metabolic panel. It also looks at uric acid, which is a marker to look at kidney function with uh, protein. And sometimes going higher protein diet can have influence there. So we like to check on uric acid and gout uh, risk and things like that. It does look at C-reactive protein, homocysteine, which is a marker of vascular inf inflammation. It includes that hemoglobin A1C three-month blood sugar average. It also includes the lipoprotein particle distribution using the Berkeley Cardiovascular Advanced Panel, so that A-B ratio that um, we're speaking of here, as well as a pretty thorough thyroid assessment. So beyond just your TSH, and your free T4, we're looking at your free T3 and your thyroid peroxidase, so inf inflammation in the gland, vitamin D, and your baseline DHEA. Uh, so that's our weight loss plus panel. A great thing to have run, and you can bring that into your physician or just use it as your own baseline data, um, and or we can uh, consult with you on interpretation of that information. So we'll put notes in the show notes, and I think that that covers most of the labs that we discussed as far as foundational data to jump into things. Okay. Um, so let's go on to, um, 
tools. Um, so when we're talking about monitoring, I, I love the idea, um, Dr. John, uh, of using the DEXA scan and using you know variances beyond the scale to look comprehensively at what's going on with lean mass and fat mass. Um, how about if you're dealing with someone that's struggling getting into ketosis? What are two or three tips or techniques? Um, and uh, have you had people that just never get a positive? Most people, again, using urine strips, <laughs> right, to test their right. ketone production. So what are your first kind of troubleshooting techniques, I suppose? Sure. Um, and it's a very important point that you just brought up is that, you know, we're all different. So we're all going to approach it from a different perspective. Some people are going to have a much easier time. Um, and so that's why I usually tell people, do not compare yourself to your friend or your husband or your neighbor, because based on a lot of different variables, you're going to have an easier or harder time getting into ketosis. Um, for the people who really have a hard time getting into it, you know, no matter what their macros look like, even if they're doing 90%, you know, predominantly fat, I start off by asking what type of fat they're consuming. So a, a pretty common mistake that a lot of people will make is they'll use dairy as their primary source of fat. So milk, cheese, you know, even things like butter. Some people who have insulin resistance will actually have a very difficult time getting into ketosis using dairy fat as their primary fat stores source. Um, and that's because you can get some insulin effects from, uh, some of the proteins that are in those compounds. So if that's the case, then I'll tell them to consume more of a like MCT based fat. So using coconut oil or using, um, you know, things like MCT oil to try to really maximize the benefits of that because your body actually handles those oils much differently than other types of fats. So median chain triglycerides are going to basically be burned up in your system and they're not going to cause any metabolic activation. Um, the other thing that if that doesn't work or if people are still struggling, doing fasting is probably the best thing that you can do to really reverse all those metabolic um, yeah. effects. And so I'll start saying, okay, well, I, I don't like to start people off with a fast to start a program because I also want to get away from um, you know, eating disorders. A lot of people have eating disorders based on their experience in the past. So I don't want this to be, okay, yeah, you're going to do a ketogenic lifestyle. Congratulations. Here's what you do. You don't eat any, anything <laughs> for five days. It doesn't go over very well. People are like, all right, well, yeah, I'll lose weight, but also, you know, we'll be starving. So, but if they've tried, you know, multiple different things that I've recommended and it's still not working, then a uh, three to five day fast is really going to push their body over the edge and usually will have a tremendous um, long-term impact. Um, and I uh, actually use fast for myself. I'll probably do a five to seven day fast um, every six to eight weeks for different reasons, more for you know mTOR reduction, things like that, to make sure that I don't have significant amount of metabolic damage. Um, other things that you can use. And can um, you, before we go on, can you walk listeners through that? Because that's pretty extreme sounding to probably some. Is this just a water fast? Is this a bone broth fast? What type of yeah. fasting do you do for that five-day period? So um, it depends on uh, whether or not you've done it before and, and how much you can handle. Obviously, a water fast would be the ultimate um, in terms of fasting. Uh, most individuals who will do fasting will do it also just for fat loss, and you can anticipate probably half a pound of real fat loss per day by doing it. Um, I usually will do either a water fast or a bone broth fast, and the bone broth fast, basically, you're just trying to get the electrolytes, the collagen, things that are not going to raise your insulin level, and so you basically still get the benefits of a fast, but you're not, it's not as painful basically as the water fast. I think it depends on which one you use. I think most people, um, will have an easier time doing a bone broth fast because at least they can consume something. It feels like, you know, nutrition. Um, and so that psychological component of I'm not really starving myself. I'm just not eating full meals is a lot easier to handle. Um, some people will even do fat fast where they'll still do their bulletproof coffee in the morning. Um, which may or may not really raise your insulin level, so may or may not be as effective. I think it's individually um, derived, so some people can do it and not have a, a negative effect. Other people really can't do it. Um, for me, it's either bone broth fast or strict water fast because 
I'm trying to affect the mitochondria, which I don't want any negative effects on it by, you know, consuming any types of uh, fats or um, macronutrients. And then what about people that are of low body weight? I have a couple, uh, you know, walls warriors and uh, people that are doing keto that are in women, maybe five foot four, 96 pounds, 97 pounds, you know, and so we're constantly working to, to keep enough nourishment um, to not have that, of course, half pound fat loss per day when they're fasting. Um, What's the cost of benefit ratio? I guess this is truly like a selfish clinical question (laughs) because I've been a little gun shy on pushing this woman Mm -hmm. more than 24 hours, uh, you know, and she has read Dr. Walls does three days, yada, yada. And, and, And so, you know, what's the cost of benefit ratio of someone that is of a lower body weight to get that mitochondrial push, would you preload them or postload them or kind of what would you go about for recovery or would you keep it as an ongoing fat fast or, or, or just do like an 18, six, what would be your approach? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and I do have this experience with a lot of athletes. So a lot of my sure. athletes that I work with, you know, they're 4% body fat. They basically do not have the ability to do extended periods of fasting Uh, For those people, um, you do not get as much benefit from like a mitochondrial cellular level. But what I'll do is instead of doing really like a long-term fast, I generally will do like a 24-hour fast. So for like a week, I'll tell them, okay, just eat dinner, don't eat anything else throughout the day. And so you do get some of the benefits, but you're still not going to drop the significant amount of weight, right? So uh, for those people, especially if you're an athlete, you have to recover. You have to have that uh, macronutrients and micronutrients or else you're going to get more cellular damage than you want. It's important not to do an extended period of uh, fasting. Alternatives, you could preload them. Um, I don't think you get much benefit out of that. Right, uh, right. Um, because you're, you're basically, your body is so smart, it's going to utilize what it needs and get rid of the rest. Um so I think, in my experience, the 24-hour fast tends to work pretty well. Okay. Okay. And then in our protocol, we use um, three days of intermittent fasting, kind of a 16-8, just restricted eating for the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, do you include any intermittent fasting within your protocols other than the prolonged? Absolutely. I think intermittent fasting is probably the most important um, component of any type of, uh, lifestyle, to be honest with you, I think, um, for a number of reasons, but, um, from a biohacking standpoint, um, doing a 16, eight, basically where you're not eating past, I don't know what time you guys use, but I generally, generally will say, you know, eat between 10 o'clock and like six o'clock or something like that. So by 6 PM, you stop eating. And what does that do? It does a number of things. Number one, when you eat late at night, you actually get um, decreased uh, growth hormone production. You have worsening sleep because your body is trying to digest that food. Um, So you negatively affect your sleep. And when you negatively affect your sleep, in the morning you get significant cortisol defects and raise insulin and it can raise your leptin. And so that's why I like biohacking so much is because it takes into account all these different variables which are all affecting your body very similarly. And that is whether or not you are overstressing your body, overstressing your sympathetic nervous system, which is going to cause you to uh, basically have all these metabolic uh, defects. So for a lot of people, that's usually the intro is, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do intermittent fasting basically every day. I mean, I will do it every day. Um, and then as people get more accustomed to it, because it's a quite a, quite a shift for a lot of people to say, look, you're only going to eat between these, these periods of time. People have a hard time converting to that. Once they've converted, then I think it's important to start incorporating the 24 hour fast or the three to five day fast, you know, kind of a gradual uh, indoctrination, I guess, is how I would look at it. Sure. And that makes it a little bit easier to yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tip their toe in the water first. Let's talk about any particular supplements or apps or other tools that you would use um, for getting best outcomes in ketosis and also for monitoring. Okay. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that um, most people will use. So you talked about the urine ketone strips. 
I, I can go either way on this. I think for some people it's important because initially it's going to give them kind of a positive reinforcement that, look, I'm producing ketones. Um, eventually you get, you know, false negatives because your body's actually using those ketones so they don't show up in your urine. So your test is negative. So I really like, um, obviously, you know, finger stick, blood ketone. And I also like the breath ketones. Um, I was going to talk about this at KetoCon, but didn't have enough time where, you know, the, the blood ketone is going to check, um, beta hydroxybutyrate where the breath ketone is going to actually check, um, acetyl. CoA or the breakdown of acetyl-CoA or acetone. And that's important because you want to know, is your body, so the blood one is really going to tell you your body is making ketones, but the breath one is going to tell you, are you actually utilizing those ketones, right? So when you have higher levels of acetone in your breath, that means your body's actually converting those ketones into the active form that you want to use. So I'll sometimes use a ratio and show people like, okay, you're producing a lot, but you're not necessarily using them, so you're not fat adapted quite yet. And people have to understand that it takes a while once you convert into a ketogenic lifestyle to actually utilize the ketones that you're producing. So step one is getting your body away from using sugar or glucose as the main fuel source. Step two is allowing your body to upregulate different types of receptors to be able to use those ketones as fuel. Once you do that, then your body can actually measure, you can measure it and say, okay, I'm actually fat adapted. So obviously ketone, very important for anybody who's doing a ketogenic lifestyle. Um, other things that I use for myself and for a lot of the biohackers is sleep. I think sleep is an incredibly important component of any type of nutritional lifestyle. So I'll use something like an aura ring, which will measure my sleep patterns. You can use a Fitbit, Apple Watch. There's a lot of different techniques on the market that you can use. But I think it's important to know, are you sleeping? And then what type of sleep you're actually having, because that'll positively or negatively affect your um, ability to be in ketosis or be, you know, functionally healthy. Sure. Um, so those are like, you know, if I were to start with two, those would be the first two that I would tell people to check. And on the breath ketone meter, have you seen anything clinically with SIBO and false data as far as acetate? Yeah, obviously. So you can get elevated levels um, with SIBO. Um, I don't have enough clients that I would say I work with that okay. uh, have SIBO um, okay. to give you a 100% accurate um, answer to that. Um, in terms of different breath ketone meters. Um, obviously there's the ketonics, which I think has been out there longest level has come out with one. Yeah. Um, and they were at the KetoCon, and I'm interested in seeing kind of more about their product. Um, I think the, my hope is that as this becomes more mainstream, there's going to be more technology that comes into it. So you're going to have more accurate data, cheaper data, yeah. And so more people are going to be able to use it. And that's one of the downsides that a lot of people will say, well, it's expensive because I have to buy ketone strips or blood meter strips and each one is $2. Uh, and it becomes kind of a cost analysis benefit. Um, so I think as Silicon Valley really starts pushing healthcare uh, measurements, which they are right now, the cost is going to come down, more people will be able to utilize it and we'll get better outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it goes back to that individualized, what's your base norm and what are other things that you can track within your body knowing that you're keto adapted uh, as far as cognition, feeling with the feeling within your body. A lot of people will, will state when they're keto adapted, they feel flatter just in their abdomen. Um, mm -hmm. in general, um, and energy, sleep, all those things, breath changes, and then what's your norm, and then what score are you looking for versus, like you said, kind of comparing to friends or <laughs> other people that are tracking and doing, because there is this metabolic chemistry equation that's unique to the individual, of course, of, of how their body's going to adapt and perform. Absolutely. And then on that note, I would just say that People have to realize, and the reason I think a lot of us call it a ketogenic lifestyle is that have realistic goals. So don't say, okay, I need to lose 50 pounds in, in you know, two weeks, and that's going to be my marker of success. Like This is something that if you're going to do it, do it for 
lifetime. I mean, this is really a way to be healthy so you don't have to see physicians, you don't have to be on multiple medications, and you'll be able to enjoy the benefits of real nutrition again, which I think a lot of people are missing. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And, and even taking it within that mindset a step further, I think that often there's this rigidity factor. We, It's human nature, I think, that when we want to do a diet or a lifestyle change, there, what is the structure? What's the plan? <laughs> and so we have people now that are four weeks into our virtual keto program and they're like, so fasting feels really great. Can I do it? A, can I do it a fourth day? It's like, well, yeah, you can do it every day. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, this yeah. is the this is the start. This is what this feels like. Now, what does your body tell you? Or, um, you know, people, I'm not hungry. Do I have to have two snacks? It's like, well, <laughs> listen, you know, listen it goes back to, your body. to yeah. So it's kind of interesting that finding that that dance of that rigidity, and then um, that something with structure can also be very freeing because you release a lot of the anxiety and rumination mm. of the is this right. Um, is this yielding results? And, and so having that structure can be helpful, but then listening is important too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, um, you know, like you mentioned, everybody's different, so you're going to have a different response, but, but part of any type of nutrition that's going to try to heal your, your body, but the ketogenic lifestyle specifically is that you will start listening to your body again. You'll, you know, those signals that your body are giving you to tell you you're hungry, those become normal again. So you have a better sense of what's going on. If you're hungry, that's great. Eat something. If you're not hungry, then you don't have to eat. You know, we have to get away from this con concept that, you know, if you're not fueling yourself 24-7, you're going to somehow be unhealthy. Not at all. You know, your body is very, very adapted to eating when you're hungry and then when you're not utilizing your own fat stores for energy. It's, it's a beautiful kind of symbiosis that we have. Absolutely. And, and just finally for listeners, um, if we're talking about, so I think we did a good hit as far as, um, foundational information, I guess for those that are talking to their doctor and they're getting a backlash, um, for those that aren't open-minded to the concept, what's your kind of quick, like, uh, 30 second or one minute, <laughs> um, rebound to the, the question of kidney damage with a ketogenic diet and ketoacidosis. I think those are the two biggest pushbacks. Right. What, what's your answer and, and what does the patient use to advocate for against those two things? Sure. And that's a great question. So I'll start with ketoacidosis because that's probably the one that's mo most common. Um, so just for listeners, um, one of the biggest myths of ketosis is that y if you do it, you're going to be in ketoacidosis. And I think it's conceptually physicians don't understand what the difference is. So there's nutritional ketosis, which will drive your ketone levels up, you know, to a maximum of about five, depending on which scale you use, but five. Um, diabetic ketoacidosis is a life-threatening disease that people who do not have insulin will have. And, and usually their ketone levels will be in the 15 to 20 range. So it's a very, very different metabolic dysfunction where you have very high glucose levels, very high ketone levels, and your body is unable to use the glucose as fuel. And so it starts making these ketones from fatty acid uh, breakdown, um, and that drives your acid-base disequilibrium, and you can die from it. When doctors hear or see ketone in the blood or in the urine, that's what they think is happening. And it's really educating. I think it's important to educate the population mm -hmm. so that when they go to their doctor and they say, I'm doing ketosis or I'm doing a ketogenic lifestyle, and the doctor says, well, you're going to have diabetic ketoacidosis, they can almost educate the physician and say, look, there's a difference between nutritional <laughs> ketosis and diabetic ketoacidosis. And here's the difference. So I actually have pamphlets for my um, uh, clients that I give to them to give to their physicians so sure. that there is a better understanding. Because I think um, the more healthcare professionals start understanding the basic differences, the better we're going to be as a society. We're going to have more doctors who are going to be pushing nutrition as a way to heal things versus being a barrier to what we're trying to accomplish. Um, so I think it's really getting the information out there like we're doing, like you're doing at these conferences. I see more kind of celebrities doing it as they start pushing it, you know, we're a celebrity driven society as they start kind of talking about it, more people are going to assume that it's okay. 
get more information and tell their doctors. You know, same thing with kidney dysfunction. You know, it, I mean, it's another myth that I think will be eventually debunked, but it takes a yes. while, uh, unfortunately. So it's just, and I'll, I will actually talk to physicians. So if, if I have clients that say, you know, my physician doesn't want to do these labs or, or, you know, is concerned about this, I'll say, okay, give me their number. I'll give them a call and I'll send them all the reference articles they want so that they can read about it. And inevitably it's like, uh, this light comes on that. Oh yeah. Okay. I remember that, but I don't really, really remember that. So let me look into it. And then they come back and say, okay, you're right. There was a, there's a difference. And so it's just spreading the information. Sure. And, and I think, like you said, at the end of the day, physicians get into the field to want to help people and, and everyone following that first, do no harm mantra. It's just mm -hmm. our understanding of what no harm is, you know? And so, like you said, the, the doctor that's chasing, uh, adding carbs to the diet to chase the insulin dosage or, you know, not wanting, wanting the patient to stop a ketogenic diet because they're worried about stopping their glucophage or metformin versus understanding, okay, you're committed to this lifestyle. Let's reduce the medication and let's let the body do the work. Um, right. it, it's just a connection. And I think that, um, doctors are often inspired by successful outcomes from clients and want to work with, with the patient. And if you're getting, I think, too much pushback and, and you're doing all your work, then, then you may need to shop for a different physician. And that's an option too. Right. Right. That's yeah. Very true. Very true. And I think also, you know, the medical community, we're taught to treat things. So we're taught, you know, here's a disease, you have pneumonia, this is how you, this is how you recognize it. This is how you treat it. We're not very good at teaching this is what we need to do, to do to prevent diabetes, you know? And so I think we need to have a shift and it's starting in some medical schools where the shift has become, how do we prevent all these chronic diseases that we're experiencing? Because as a nation, you know, we're going to go bankrupt with our medical, uh, healthcare based on the fact that we have so many people with chronic diseases that we're keeping alive longer, but they're not healthy. And so now we have, you know, a subsect of the society that is so unhealthy, but will live longer and cost tremendous amount of money for the society. So how do you address that? I mean, if we could address that, you know, then we don't have to worry about repealing Obamacare or whatever they're trying to do. We can address it and drive down the cost tremendously. Right. So there's so many benefits from what we're, what we're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Yes, and I think we've gotten so much good information in this episode. It's already been an hour. I can't believe it. Um, we'll have to have you <laughs> on for a part two because we still have Absolutely. so many questions. Um, but I think we've gotten some good information, just basics of ketosis, how to work with your doctor, what labs to ask for, and really how to be an advocate for your own health. Absolutely. It's uh, been a and real so, pleasure. Yeah, yeah and so in you. closing... We ask all of our guests, um, what did you have to eat yesterday? <laughs> this is always what we have to ask. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> What's your 24-hour recall? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yesterday, let's see. So yesterday, uh, I'm training for a triathlon so or like a half Ironman. So my um, nutrition has been a little bit different, but I did a kind of, I call it keto doctor coffee, but it's just basically like your bulletproof coffee with a little twist to it. Um, I then exercise, went on a 10 mile run. I sometimes will do a post run fast. So I didn't eat all day. Um, and the reason I did that is to really kind of drive my growth hormone production. Um, and then at night I did pretty well. I did, um, kind of a vegetable stir fry. So I used, uh, I get all my meats from, um, a company up in Alaska that I know the meat quality is very good. So we did kind of a lamb um, shank plus vegetable, roasted vegetables um, smothered in kind of MCT oil. Um, and it was pretty phenomenal. <laughs> and what's your twist on the, uh, what, what's your keto coffee twist? Yeah, so um, I, I try to avoid butter. So um, my thing is I think I'm very, and I've tested this, I think dairy, I have a, significant insulin response to dairy. Okay. Um, so I try to avoid that. So I try not to use too much heavy cream or if I do, 
Um, it's, you know, very little, but I'll use coconut milk instead. Um, I'll use ghee instead of butter because there's not so much of the milk product, so I don't get the casein. Um, so I don't get that response. And then I'll use a little bit of, um, you know, espresso instead of coffee just to get that extra caffeine, which okay. I need. Because okay. I have three little children, so I have to keep <laughs> with them. Uh, awesome. Yeah, and then I'll use... Um, the kind of Dave Asprey uh, brain octane. So it's more specific uh, C8, um, basically um, type of MCT. Um, and I'm not a spokesman for Dave Asprey, so <laughs> don't take that as an um, endorsement. Okay, okay. Awesome. But that's that's your rocket fuel. That gets you rocking. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, awesome. It's been our pleasure to have you on the show. Um, you can find more information on Dr. John Lemansky, MD.com. So it's uh, going to be in our show notes and it's just spelt like it sounds J O H N L I M A N S K Y M D.com. Um, and we'll put some show notes together for you guys, including those lab panels that we discussed. And as always, thanks for tuning in. If you have any questions after, please put them in the Ask Allie box of the podcast. And um, we will look forward to, to learning more as, as things evolve in the conversation. So thanks again, Dr. Lemansky. Yeah, thank you guys. It was such a great um, time talking to you and real honor. I love what you guys are doing. So keep it up. Thanks. All right. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.